Merry Christmas. Glad to see all of you. I got to sit in the uh, junior section this morning. I think there were a few adults and like 14 kids in the first two rows. So the clapping and the singing was top notch down here. Here, our voices raised together to praise Jesus, who was a baby 2,000 years ago and now sits at the Father's right hand and receives our praise as the eternal God-man. And so uh, let me ask you to grab a Bible or an app that contains the Bible and turn to Acts chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover one in the seats in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, please take that as a gift from us. And today we are in the New Testament, the book of Acts chapter 5, Luke, John, and Acts. We are in a series called Rediscovering Church, the Unquenchable Gospel in Action. And we're going to be in the book of Acts for quite a while. So hope that you're uh, looking forward to that uh, as we are. And today's sermon title is Can't Stop the Preaching. Um, and that requires an explanation. Uh, and I think that uh, you may be familiar with a popular quote that goes something like, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, so I, I did a little search found that we are um, possibly misquoting that. Um, I'm going to do some more research on that. But it seems that, that Tertullian, um, almost 2,000 years ago, one of the earliest church fathers wrote to uh, a Roman official, we multiply when you reap us. The blood of Christians is seed. And so I want to nuance that uh, a little bit. A few weeks ago, we prayed for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, every November uh, is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Of course, every day is the day of prayer for the persecuted church because they are uh, beseeching the Father for um, various things that we don't know about because we've never experienced persecution to the level of the in North Korea and Iran and other places. But let's think about that. The blood of Christians is seed. And, and that's an important thing to think about. It is not an automatic transaction. If there is persecution, there is automatically growth. If people die, the church spreads. That can be the way that it happens. And certainly in the book of Acts, that is the way that it happens. But there are certain places in the world where the church has been wiped from that place on the earth. So let us consider then the global nature of the church. Let us consider how many gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches right now, within 20 miles of us, are meeting as well to praise their Savior. And so it is a sobering thing to think about this. Tertullian said, We multiply when you reap us. The blood of Christians is seed. And yet there are places around the world where the church has been wiped out. We pray for its return. But often those people have spread the news of them has spread. Now in the digital age, we can hear so many more of these things that spur us on to love and good deeds, that encourage us, that get us to pray. And as we think about persecution, as we think about suffering, that leads us into the passage that we're going to talk about today. And so we need to approach this with a, a balanced, nuanced view of persecution. 
Um, how many of you this week prayed, Lord, bring on the persecution, I'd like it? How many of you think we might need it? Right? So there, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of nuance there to, to hold to this. There's gonna be various positions held on that. But I want you, uh, to keep your finger in Acts 5, but go to 1 Timothy really quick. Towards the end of the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then a passage that we frequently, um, think about as far as how to pray for our nation, how to pray for our leadership. I want you to notice that Paul is not a masochist. Christians are not masochists. We don't go around seeking to be persecuted. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is what Paul wanted. The ideal is a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. Paul's life was not generally qualified as a peaceful and quiet life. And But this is the goal that we pray for, that the persecuted church prays for, that we look for. Nevertheless, we live with the words of Jesus that in this world you will have trouble. You'll have tribulation. Jesus promises that he has overcome the world. So when we think of Emmanuel at Christmas time, we think of God with us, not just in a manger, but with us in the grocery store, with us as we cry into our pillows, with us as we have hard conversations, with us on the freeway. He is truly with us. So with that in mind, let's get to this fast-paced, action-packed chapter of Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 17 through 42, the end of the chapter. That'll be our text for today. Acts 5, 17 through 42. You follow along while I read. Luke wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards stand the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel 
a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. Is Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to illuminate this passage for us. Father, we thank you that today you have us here in Acts chapter 5. We thank you that as we talk of hope and joy and peace in this season, that we are reminded that Many of our brothers and sisters around the world have very little hope outside of you. There is a lot to go against their joy, and there is no peace where they are. Lord, for those of us who are enjoying a quiet and peaceful life, who can come to a large building on a Sunday morning in full view of the public, sit in a room with padded seats, amplification, climate-controlled, where we have so many things to distract us from the realities of the blessings that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. We appreciate the creature comforts. We are desperate for your presence. So be with us this morning. Teach us, remind us, challenge us, convict us, comfort us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it seems a little bit like a repeat um, of a, an episode, two episodes ago. But in Acts chapter 4, we saw the beginning of the opposition. Acts chapter 3 and 4 saw the beginning of the opposition to the apostles. So our story has moved from the Gospel of Luke and Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, his appearance to his apostles and his ascension back to the Father. And now we've entered the second installment, the book of Acts that Luke also wrote. Jesus has left, but he has sent his spirit. He has poured out his spirit on his followers. And now they are preaching and teaching. And thousands have come out of the empty Judaism that they were a part of and into a vibrant Jewish Christianity. As the church is forming and finding its identity and learning what it means to live under this new covenant that Jesus' blood initiated, and living in light of Jesus being the Messiah amongst the people that don't believe that this Jesus was their Messiah, this people that 2,000 years later primarily are still waiting for their Messiah, we see them beginning to grapple with opposition. And the opposition primarily here are their fellow Jews and those in authority. 
And this is the context that we need to take this into, but the applications throughout the sermon today are varied because of the culture that we live in, because of the jobs that we work in, because of the situations that we are in, because of the ages that are represented here in this room. And so I want you to consider with me today, rather than saying, well, this isn't happening, to think, how is there opposition in my life keeping me from following Jesus and or telling others about him? What is the opposition in my life to telling others about this good and great news? So what do we see in this passage, these verses, we see intense opposition and even persecution cannot stop the church's gospel advance. Intense opposition and even persecution cannot stop the church's gospel advance. In chapter 4, we saw a warning and a release. Catch and release from the authorities. In chapter 5, we will see a beating and thoughts of murder. The opposition is increasing. The persecution takes a step up. Peter and John were detained. Today we see the 12, all of them, detained. Look, Go ahead and look then at verse 17, back at the beginning, Acts 5, 17. And we'll see here the first several verses. Jealous opposition may arise, but go where God leads. Jealous opposition may arise, but go where God leads. The, the main characters that we see here are the high priest, once again. You see that in verse 17. The high priest and his party. If you think about um, the Jewish uh, religious scene in the early uh, years of the first century, um, they too had various parties and beliefs. There were politics mixed with religion, mixed with all of the things that we mix our politics with. And the Sadducees are the party of the high priest and his family. And we, Pastor Ron talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, we've seen names of some of these. This is likely Caiaphas, who was the high priest who also tried Jesus at his trial. But Caiaphas's father-in-law was Annas, and Annas had been the previous high priest, and he began what was kind of a little uh, cozying up to the Roman authorities. And uh, between Annas and his son-in-laws and his sons, they had a dynasty, a, a grip, a priesthood. And so with the power that he wielded, as well as the party that he was a part of, um, they together here in a, in a partisan movement. In the book of Luke, we often see the Pharisees um, named as the bad guys. We see them a lot in the stories opposed to Jesus. In the book of Acts, we often see the Sadducees, another party of the Jews, uh, more involved in the persecution and in the leadership. And that's because in Luke's gospel, we're mostly in and around Galilee, far away. We're in the country. We're away from the urban centers. And the Pharisees tended to do better amongst the rural. And it sound like a like a CNN special, we're talking about politics, and there might have been some red and blue maps here. But the Pharisees did much better in the rural areas of Israel, and the Sadducees um, had a lot more influence and power in the urban center, the religious center, the political center of Israel, and that was Jerusalem. The Sadducees also tended to be wealthy, aristocratic, tied to the culture, commerce of Jerusalem, and the temple itself. So this is where they held sway. There were Sadducees and Pharisees on the council, which we'll see here in a minute, which is also in some translations called the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. But this is, these are the characters that come up. 
we've, we've just seen um, some purging in the church in chapter 5. Last week we saw Ananias and Sapphira um, attempt to deceive uh, Peter and the apostles. And the Lord struck them dead for their great sin of deceit and pride. We see a, a summary right before our passage about signs and wonders and teaching and gathering and all of these things that were happening This good news. And that's why the first word in verse 17 is, but things aren't so great. So the party, the Sadducees, the high priest, they rise up and Luke tells us that their motivation is what? They're in the end of verse 17. What's their motivation? They're jealous. They're jealous. They're envious. Now, the word here is actually a word for zealous, and it can have a positive connotation, being like a, like a zeal for something good. And when it has a negative connotation, it's jealous because you're zealous for something that's not yours. Zealous for someone, something that someone else has. And so it's likely the negative connotation could argue that they're filled with zealousy, <laughs> that they're zealots for the law, for what they perceive to be I died, didn't I? There we go. I can hear that. All right. They're filled with jealousy and they move based on the jealousy. Now that's super interesting. Your Bibles, back to the Gospel of Matthew, just a few pages. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, verse 18. We have Pilate, who is the Roman governor. He's trying Jesus. Jesus has been brought up for trial. And Matthew tells us in verse 18 of Matthew 27, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. We're looking at Matthew chapter 27 because the parallel here is that when Jesus is on trial before the same body, before these same people, Pilate, the Roman governor, can see, he can tell, he notices that the reason the Jewish authorities are doing this to Jesus is because of envy. This is ridiculous because this is something that we might equate um, to having a good talk with our teenagers about. This is envy and jealousy that is driving grown men to murder somebody. This is the seriousness of this. And this is why envy is not a minor sin. You could could argue that it's included in the 10th commandment not to covet. Um, and you also see it throughout the scriptures. In fact, it's in some lists of sins, some heinous sins, and envy stuck right there in the middle. It's not demoted to the JV team. Envy is a varsity sin. So as we see the Jewish authorities here, we don't just notice it in the Jewish authorities and go, tisk, 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 I can't believe them. We look at the Jewish authorities and we say, uh-oh, I see some of myself in them. Because you're envious, aren't you? Of somebody? Of something? Yes, you are. We all are. We struggle with this. This is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, when he describes what love is, he says love does not envy. uh, Envy is inherently unloving. When you envy someone or something that someone owns, you're not loving them. It makes us... This is my notes. This is my official notes. It makes us do stupid stuff. When we are driven by jealousy and envy, we do stupid things. These... Religious leaders, these meticulous followers of the law, are filled with jealousy. Why are they filled with jealousy? Because they're losing their power. 
their influence. Thousands of converts away from their system and over to this upstart, lower middle class group of people that are turning to follow this Jesus who they killed on a Roman cross. They got what they wanted. Or so they thought. What do they do? They rise up. They arrest the apostles. They put them in the public prison. All of them. We're to understand that at least the twelve are in prison. In verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And the angel tells them, go back to the temple and keep doing what you're doing before. So this is crazy. Get out of prison. What should you do? Go do the same thing they put you in prison for. Repeat. (laughs) Just go do it again. And the apostles obey. They obey the word of the Lord. Now, what are they supposed to do? Look at this interesting phrase in verse 20. Speak to the people all the words of this life. If you have an English Standard Version, life is capitalized. That's conjecture that possibly it's referring to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the the life. Um, it could be maybe lowercase, the life of Jesus being um, given in story form, in teaching to them, whatever the case, that's what they are to do. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So we don't know exactly where the prison was. Some think, think it was on the temple mount. Some think it was adjacent to the temple mount. Whatever the case, they're released from prison. It seems like when it's still dark, but in that darkest before the dawn kind of time. Okay. Um, and they go to the temple. The temple didn't open until the sun came up. So um, somehow they got back from prison into the temple as soon as it opened, right? They were waiting in line to get into the temple. And as soon as they get back in, they begin to teach. Now, this is hilarious, and I think that Luke plays it this way. But as we get into this verse 21b, we begin to see the hustle and bustle, the morning uh, starting for the council, and they begin to get together. They've been strategizing. They've been talking. They've been trying to figure out how, what they're going to do with the apostles, how they're going to put an end to this. They have their schemes. They've been working. This is political, right? They've been working to try to make this happen. So they come together. They call together the council, all the Senate. I think that Luke repeats that just to kind of go, ooh, the pomp and the circumstance, the council, all the Senate of the people of Israel. They all get together, and there's there's a, a place where they met. Um, we're not exactly sure where it was, but this is most likely on the Temple Mount, and it was probably a, a very nice place. Um, it was set up in a semicircle um, so that you could have 70, is the traditional number, 71, including the high priest, uh, were the members of the Sanhedrin, uh, um, a Jewish, um, kind of a mix of, of a judicial and legislative, actually, and some executive uh, powers were given to the council, um, they're also called a Senate here. And so they've all gathered. They're all, they've all got what they're wearing. They're all there. They sit down in their seats. Call the prisoners. Now, the funny thing is Luke's already told us where the prisoners are. The prisoners ain't in prison. <laughs> okay? So as you read this, this is really funny. Because we know something that they don't. They call the, have them brought. Verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. <laughs> so they returned and reported... I'm going to interpret this the way of reading this. Uh, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Right? I mean, go get the prisoners. Where did we last see them? They were in prison. That means they were behind locked doors. That means there were soldiers and guards there. When they went to go find them, they had every reason to believe they were in the prison. Okay? They're not there. 
Then Luke goes for some dry humor in verse 24. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. Yeah. Wondering what this would come to. Someone came and told them, look, someone. Who's that? I don't know. Someone. Someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. What? How did this happen? Who rescued the apostles? Who went in there? Who opened the doors? Who got them out? An angel. Let me tell you something really funny about Sadducees. They were the liberals of the Jewish people, and they guess who they didn't believe in? Angels. <laughs> they didn't believe in angels. So they have no way of figuring out what happened here. It has to be a naturalistic explanation. They don't have a naturalistic explanation. This doesn't make any sense because not only when they went did they find the doors locked, but there were guards at the door. So this leads us to believe that there's a miracle happening here, right? What happened? Did the angel walk through and were they, you know, weak-willed and say, the prisoners aren't here? You know, like, they, the, the guards have no recollection of anything happening. Um, this is not like a prison breakout movie, okay? This is not like the, the apostles are in there like drawing plans and like when the, when they, when the guards change and they switch, we're just going to jump out. They didn't do that. This is all supernatural to a group of men who don't believe much in the supernatural. Hilarious. Now, these powerful men, these religious leaders in verse 26, they send the captain with the officers to go get the apostles but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. I mean, this is a big turnaround in the, in the, just a few minutes time. The, the, the esteemed, respected leaders of the Jewish world now having to tiptoe around the will of the people because they don't want to get stoned. Now it's probably not stoned to death like we're going to see in a few chapters with Stephen or like an execution, but it's more likely they're afraid of the, of a populist uprising and all of the Jews picking up how many of you have been to Israel? Some rocks? Did you see some rocks? There's rocks everywhere. Um, this is what they're afraid of. If we go up and get those guys, all the people in the temple are just going to look around, pick up some rocks, just start chucking rocks at us. Okay? And, and that would be undignified. It might hurt a little bit. It'd be very embarrassing. And in an honor-shame culture, it would be the worst. Okay? It would be the worst. So they have to, what do they do? They're not, they're not bringing them by force. Do you know what that means? It means they asked the apostles to come and they came. It means they showed up and said, come with us. And the apostles didn't say, nah, 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 we broke out of prison. They went back to the guys that threw them in prison. This is strange because we don't act like this. If I had been back, if I had even had the guts to go back up to the temple and obey the angel to preach, when I see the guards come, guys, 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 let's go, right? The temple mount's big. We can go hide over here. We run away. We can come back another day. We won't get arrested today. We got arrested last night. Let's not do this again. They go with the guards. So when the opposition arises, they go where God leads, and sometimes God leads into scary places. Now, we move now back to the council as the apostles come in. And so point number two in your notes is to stay on target. Serve up the truth with a generous amount of hope. Stay on target. Serve up the truth with a generous amount of hope. And I have in mind here um, 
before we even get in, is what Paul said to Timothy in the last letter that we have from Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can look this up later. But in his instructions to Timothy, this is what he says to this young pastor, this young man of God. Here is what he wants him to be like. Here's what the Lord's servant is to be defined by. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the idea that I have in mind is this instruction that Paul gives to Timothy. Some of us read this and we think there's mic drop moments here and there's bombast and there's uh, real dramatic music, even some slow-mo as the apostles are watching. Gentle, kind, correcting, but kind. Watch what the apostles do here as they're brought back in front of the council. Verse 27, they set them there, and the high priest begins to question them. And again, this is not like a discussion. Hey guys, good to see you again. Um, got a little disagreement here. That's not what's happening. The high priest questions them, and they need to answer. They are under his authority. And the high priest says in verse 28, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. He doesn't want to say whose name it is, right? this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Two things here. What's he concerned about? He's concerned that they're teaching in the name that they expressly told them not to. We forbid you from doing that and you're doing it. You're disobeying. And you're making us look bad. Not only that, But the idea in their culture of someone's blood being upon you is a blood guiltiness. And that, if they convince the people of that, that's a dangerous place to be for these religious leaders. They do not want to be caught as having this man's blood upon us. Now keep that in mind. You're trying to pin this man's blood upon us. Go back to Matthew 27. Go back to Matthew 27. And and by the way, how long have we gone from Jesus' death and resurrection to this in Acts chapter 5? Weeks, months, a year. Most scholars would say probably not more than a year, year and a half here at most. It's not that, that far after all the events of the Gospels have taken place. Matthew chapter 27, and look at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. You asked for it. You asked for it. Literally asked for it. But they see that the tide is turning against them. And so the, the, lead, the religious leaders are beginning to get a little bit desperate here. By the way, have they considered how the apostles got out? No, it's best not to let's not dwell on that. That might have been supernatural and that's uncomfortable. 
Let's just deal with what we have in front of us. Why are you doing this? Don't teach in this name. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. May it be said of us that we've filled up Garden Grove and Anaheim and Westminster and Santa Ana and Orange and Yorba Linda with the apostles' teaching. May this be the accusation against us that we have filled our region, our neighborhoods, our workplaces appropriately with the apostles' teaching. This is what we're supposed to do. To fill up. This is a great thing to be accused of. You are filling up this, this place with the apostles' teaching. Yep. You're teaching in Jesus' name. Uh-huh. That's it. This is what we are called to do. Now, being brought before the, the leaders, being brought before the court, um, this is normal in the life of so many believers today. They're often brought before the courts. And increasingly in our own country and our neighbor to the north, Christians are being brought before the courts. This has been regular life for many throughout church history, and it should be expected because Jesus told this to his his apostles in Luke chapter 21. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. The apostles have been warned. Jesus had told them this was going to happen. And he said this, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is Jesus telling it how it's going to be. We're seeing the, the fulfillment of what Jesus said to his followers. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Did you hear that? That too. They they will put some of you to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. How is that to be the case? Listen, this is what the scripture teaches for the people of God. All they can do is kill you. And we can say that really easily and minimize that, but that's all they can do. That doesn't mean it's not awful. That doesn't mean it's not horrible and there's not suffering, but that's the le- that's all that they can do. The most they can do is kill you and in reality, not a hair of your head will perish. Because what we know from Scripture is that death for the believer leads to life immediately. Jesus told him this was happening and then he said this to end that part of his teaching. He said, by your endurance you will gain your lives. Endurance means there's something to endure. Right? It's not enduring anything if if it's not hard. Endurance is required when things get hard, difficult, suffering, persecution. Now, what do Peter and the apostles say? They say that famous phrase, we must obey God rather than men. And I want you to, to think about this. Based on how all of this has gone, I don't think Peter is speaking in a way that he's pugnacious. He's not attacking Caiaphas, the high priest. He's not defiant in his tone or his posture. That's what I, that's what I, I understand that to be the case based on this passage. I think that Peter is speaking plainly to this man of God 
We must obey God rather than men. I don't think it's we must obey God rather than men. They agreed to come back. Why? Because Jesus told them this was their opportunity to be a witness. I think Peter and the apostles go, okay, we get another chance. We get another chance with these guys to share the good news. Because here's what, here's what Peter says. He doesn't just say we must obey God rather than men, nana, nana, boo-boo. The God of our fathers, whose fathers? Our. He's talking to his fellow Jews. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to do what? To give repentance to Israel. Who's Israel? The high priest. The Sadducees, they're part of Israel. What's he doing? Peter's saying, you've got another chance to repent. This is why Jesus came. You killed him, but guess what? Even though you did that heinous thing, there's still repentance for you. Repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Do you see the winsomeness of his presentation? Peter's not being a jerk. Peter's not looking for a soundbite. He's looking for converts amongst his own enemies. Listen, before, before we take we must obey God rather than men as our motto, we must do it in light of all of Scripture. I fear that sometimes we like the defiance of we must obey God rather than men and we forget to say God exalted him you can repent and believe. There is still a chance for you for forgiveness of sins. And brothers and sisters, we very often obey God by obeying men. That's the best case scenario. That has been mostly our experience for most of our lives in America. That when we obey men who are placed over us in responsibilities, that we are obeying God. When we are given a directive to violate God's will, we must obey God and disobey men. Let us work for and long for the opportunity that obeying God and obeying men go hand in hand. But let us not lose our boldness that when there is a chance, when there is the opportunity, that we don't, we don't just throw this at people, but we say we can't do that because we love God and we're called to obey him and you're not you. The tone with which we do that is important. When you see all these, anybody read the Fox's Book of Martyrs? You should read that. Um, it's in our church library. I, I think it's free online. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs has horrible, glorious stories of men and women throughout Christian history going to their death because of what they believed. So many of them go willingly to the stake. Some would go to a stake where they were to be burned and some of them would kiss the stake. Some of them would, would put their hand into the fire. Not because they were masochists, not because they liked it, but because they welcomed the opportunity to die for their Lord. And so many of them did it winsomely. In fact, some of them preached and sang hymns while being burnt alive at the stake. This is how we obey God rather than man. Not angrily. But extending forgiveness of sins to those who have even wronged us.
What did God do with this Jesus? He exalted him as leader and savior. Those words there are interesting. Some of your translations say prince or ruler. Sometimes it can mean um, um, the originator or the founder. Uh, and in fact, in Acts chapter 3, it's, it's translated author of. What is Jesus? He's the author, the leader, the first, the one who leads out with his people. He's also the one who saves them. And this word soter is the same exact word that was used of the Roman emperor because the Roman emperor was the savior of the Roman citizenship. There's a little bit of a, of um, just kind of getting under that term and repurposing that term um, from Roman meaning to Christian meaning that Jesus is the savior. The emperor may have provided some short-term peace, but Jesus is the real savior because he can save those who have sinned even against him. It's important to, to note these things and important to look at them. The boldness of the apostles, the plain boldness, not searching for a soundbite, not looking for a retweet, but wanting to respectfully, but forcefully and boldly tell the truth. This is what Peter says. One of the scholars I was reading this week said this, God offers salvation, not retribution, for the crucifixion of Jesus. To the very ones who wanted him crucified, God extends, you too can be saved. You too can be forgiven for the most heinous act in human history. God offers salvation. Now as we move into the next few verses, we have a a long uh, quote, a long speech from an unbeliever. In fact, it's the first one in the book of Acts from an unbeliever that we hear from. In verses 33 through 40, we see, take Gamaliel's advice and take it further. Take Gamaliel's advice and take it further. So Gamaliel comes up in verse 34. He's a Pharisee. So now we see the other party. And he's well-respected. In fact, um, we know from later on that he was known as Gamaliel the Elder. Um, he, his father, or perhaps his grandfather, was the, one of the great rabbis, Hillel. And we find out actually later in the book of Acts that Paul sat at Gamaliel's feet. Gamaliel was one of his, um, one of his leaders, one of his teachers. Um, he was greatly known. He had a huge influence even after he died. Um, a, a later comment in Jewish history tells us how influential this man was when he said, when Rabban, um, which means our rabbi, uh, which was the first, he was the first one to hold that title. This great title of Rabban. Our, we all own him. The Jews all over the world owned him as their rabbi. When Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. He was such an upholder of the law. He was so well um, respected. Now his speech here is very interesting. And what he's going to do is he's going to calm down the council because in verse 33, the council reacts to Peter's words with rage. They've been pushed too far. Their authority is slipping away. Their influence is diminishing. And so they are enraged and they want to kill them. They already killed their leader, Jesus. Perhaps they see an opportunity to continue the job. But Gamaliel is going to calm them down. As he speaks in these verses, he gives them two uh, historical references to think about. He tells them about Theodos and Judas the Galilean. We don't know exactly who these guys are because their names are very common um, in Jewish history. Uh, but there are plenty of examples of uprisings and rebellions that we know that this is, um, this is historical. Uh, Judas the Galilean, for example, in verse 37, in the days of the census, there were multiple censuses, but 
Um, this could have been the census that took Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. It could have been a census um, several years later. But Judas the Galilean rose up, and it is likely that he rose up because of taxes. He was, uh, it was a tax uprising, a rebellion that was quashed. It didn't work. Um, in fact, his grandson was one of the Jewish zealots who held out on Masada um, until the very end um, in that famous story. Uh, but these men, Theodos and Judas, are examples of uprisings that failed. And so Gamaliel says, listen, hold off, guys. Let's just back up. This happens. This happens from time to time. We Jews, this happens. So he says this, you know what we should do? These guys rose up. They got a lot of interest and it all fell apart. So let's wait and see. This is the wait and see approach. It's the moderate approach. It's probably the don't waste your authority and opportunity approach. Because they can sense the, the authority slipping away. It's a speech focused on preservation and power and the reputation of the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel doesn't want them to fly off the handle and just start murdering people. They already killed Jesus. So, so wait. And here's the reason why. Look at verse 38. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. It'll just peter out. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. So Gamaliel is is moderating this and saying, you know what? We don't know. So let's wait and see because one of the worst things would be to be a, an enemy of God. You might even be found opposing God. Um, that's, a, that's one word and it's, it's like a God opposer, a God enemy. You don't want to be labeled a God enemy, especially us on the Sanhedrin, on the council. We don't want to do that. So let's calm down Let's see what happens. Let's ignore them. Let's not give them all the good press, right? All press is good press. No, let's not give it to them. Let's kind of see if this thing falls apart. And so they took his advice. Now, at the end of verse 39 into 40, it talks about how they listened to Gamaliel. He calmed them down. They took his advice. Now, I would like us to take Gamaliel's advice and take it further. Rather than just kind of playing the, oh, let's hold on. Let's look at the facts and let's make, let's make a decision. Is this Jesus who he says he is? Is he? Are we going to just stand back and kind of stay out of the fray? Let's take Gamaliel's advice and take it further. Let's look at what the apostles' teaching is in the rest of the New Testament and discern and make a decision. Is this true? Or isn't it? I would submit to you that it's true. What happens? Well, they moderate it somewhat, but in verse 40, they call them in and they beat them. So they take the apostles, and probably what they did is they, they probably didn't use the, um, the same whips that the Romans had. They probably used leather straps, so there wouldn't have been probably bone or metal in it. Um, but they would have beat them, probably the 40 lashes minus one that's famous from the Torah. Um, and give them 40 lashes. It could have been on the chest. It could have been on the back. It could have been on both. But this looks like all 12 of the apostles are publicly beaten. In an honor-shame culture, this is not merely painful. This is shameful. And it speaks to their being wrong in the eyes of the council. I have not been beaten. Never in my life have I been beaten. I have a hard time understanding what happens next. But that's why we have point four. Develop a theology of persecution and perseverance. Develop a theology of persecution and perseverance. 
Because as they walk out of the council, beaten, perhaps they can't even stand up straight. Perhaps their their wounds are visible. Perhaps there's blood on their bodies. They left the, the council rejoicing. There's no other way to see this than that they were happy. This is not rejoicing. Oh, that wasn't so bad. Well, at least it was for Jesus. They left rejoicing. They were in some sense joyful. Filled with joy. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Another way of saying that is they were willing to suffer disgrace or to be insulted or to suffer shame. This is an oxymoron. It doesn't work. You don't feel worthy of shame. This is the upside down way that God's kingdom works. They leave happy. Rejoicing. John Calvin said this in his commentary. It must not be thought that the apostles were so stolid as to not feel ashamed and even to suffer from a sense that they had been wronged, for they had not discarded nature completely. He said they're not just walking out of here like super soldiers, like that wasn't too bad. That was for Jesus. He said, but when they thought over the cause, joy got the upper hand. When they thought about what had just happened, joy got the upper hand. Isn't that a cool... Isn't that cool? Wouldn't that be the way we want it? Man, that was not easy. It was not fun. I would not have chosen that. But guess what? Joy gets the upper hand. This is the story of Christmas. Joy got the upper hand. Now notice, again, the respectful defiance of the apostles. They walk out and they don't complain. How many of you would walk out of there and complain? Immediately. It's painful. It's shameful. I would, I would have a hard time doing this. I think all of us would have a hard time rejoicing in this because we haven't developed a theology of persecution and perseverance. I, I think the way that some things are going in our culture, we ought to think about this quickly and figure this out. What do they do? They disobey. Verse 42. And every day, how often? Every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Every day. Actually, the, the word that's used here, I think the ESV does a great disservice to us by translating it this way. Um, the Christian Standard Bible and the NIV say something like this. They were proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This word is actually related to the word gospel. It means to preach the gospel. So the ESV translators really dropped the ball here. It's not just teaching and preaching. It's teaching and preaching the gospel. It's proclaiming the good news. This is what they continue to do. It's what the council told them not to do. Twice. Don't do it. Jesus told us to. We can't stop. We can't stop. And from what Jesus taught them, they won't be stopped. The gates of hell will not prevail. Now, that does not mean that churches, individual churches, in certain places won't be stomped out. They might. ISIS has wiped out hundreds of thousands of Christians from northern Iraq and southern Syria. There are way less Christians there. It is sad. It's not good. But the gospel goes forward because guess what? Israel's a long way from here. Some of you took that flight. It's a long ways away. We're here at the ends of the earth. 
proclaiming the gospel of Jesus because others took it with them wherever they went. May we be their children and their grandchildren and spread it further. If you want to look at how do I develop a theology of persecution and perseverance, read the stories of the Old Testament, specifically Joseph in the book of Genesis. Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth. Go back and look at the authors of the Psalms and what they're talking about in their lives. Slog through that longest book in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, and see what it means to persevere even through persecution. Prepare your children. Prepare your grandchildren. Not in a fatalistic, well, life's really going to stink for you, kids. But in a way that says... We know that Jesus wins. So we agree with Paul when he says in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Or in 2 Corinthians when he says this light momentary affliction. Light and momentary. Paul was stoned almost to death. He was whipped. He was beaten. He bore on his body the marks of Jesus. And he said light, momentary. Now listen, careful with that. Don't, don't diminish somebody. Oh, guys, it's just light and momentary. Don't worry about it. No, no, wrong application of that. <laughs> okay? The right application is to, is to wrestle to believe that that's true. Wrestling with God. God, it doesn't feel this way, but I know this is true. This is light and momentary because my life amounts to this. It's a vapor. What does eternity look like? Then study 2 Corinthians, especially chapters 4, 6, and 12, and develop that theology of persecution and perseverance. I wish I had more time, but we need to end. Lord, take this word and help us to put it into practice this week. Help us to contemplate, to think, to pray, to talk about what this means. Lord, that we might understand that your word is power. That when we speak your words, we are not merely speaking words, but we are powerfully speaking the words of life so that others might hear. So Lord, specifically tonight, when our friends and our neighbors and our family are walking through Bethlehem, give us boldness to follow up with them. Open their eyes to see the good news in the little town of Bethlehem. Lord, and in this week, with our classmates, our professors, our teachers, our friends, our family, around the Christmas uh, holidays, the things that are happening, Lord, help us to be bold to tell others what we believe. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.